Hello, this is Leonard S. Greenberger, the host of What to Say When Things Get Tough. If you haven't already listened to the brief introductory episode, please do. It will give you a good sense of what this podcast is all about. And now, I'm very pleased to present the debut episode of this podcast. Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast devoted to helping you communicate in difficult situations. Each week, we'll feature guests and commentary that will help you understand why and when you're in a difficult situation, how the rules of effective communication change when you're dealing with someone who's angry, worried, and suspicious of everything you say, and the skills and techniques you need to win people over. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger, and this is the inaugural episode of What to Say When Things Get Tough, entitled The Only Thing We Have to Fear, Part 1. Almost every difficult communication situation comes down to fear. The person receiving the information is afraid of what the person transmitting the information wants or needs to share. Perhaps the most important skill for someone who needs to win people over in a difficult situation is to understand why people are afraid. Why are they particularly afraid of the information you're trying to share? And generally, why do they fear some things and not others, even when those fears may be totally irrational? It's that last question that we're going to focus on in our first two episodes, and it's a topic we'll come back to many times in the future. Because if you can answer the question, why do people fear some things and not others, you can understand why they're particularly afraid of you and your information. Although, as we'll discuss in a future episode, difficult situations, you are the information you're trying to share. Or to quote the late Canadian communications expert Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. The question of how and why we fear some things and not others is particularly relevant today as we continue to navigate our way through the coronavirus pandemic. Even as things seem to be settling down, this singular event represents an excellent case study of why people fear some things and not others and how that can affect their behavior and the real risk that they're taking. To illustrate what I mean, let me tell you a story. I'm a longtime resident of Washington, D.C., and on the late afternoon of October 2nd, 2000. Two, everything seemed to be going well here in the city. At the time, the community was getting back to normal. Just three weeks earlier, we had commemorated the first anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, and as I'm sure you remember, while the focus was on New York City, we had a plane crash here into the Pentagon, and 184 people were killed. By this time, after a year, and after commemorating that anniversary, I think everybody was ready to try to get back to the new normal here. That afternoon, a man named James D. Martin, who was a program analyst at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, had stopped on his way home from work at a shopper's food warehouse on Randolph Road in Wheaton, Maryland. That's a close-in suburban community north of the city of Washington. He was there to buy groceries for his church, but as he was walking through the parking lot, a shot rang out, and he slumped to the asphalt, dead. He was 55 years old and left behind a wife and son. Now, at that moment, no one knew that Mr. Martin would be the first of 13 people in the Washington, D.C. area who would eventually fall victim to John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malmo, the infamous D.C. snipers. Ten of those 13 people died, and that nightmare would haunt Washington for the next 23 days before Muhammad and Malmo were quietly taken into custody at a rest stop in Myersville, Maryland. I remember those attacks well. Where I lived in Washington, D.C. was just a few miles where James Martin was killed, It was a very scary time. Several people were shot in and around the parking lots of big stores and gas stations. 
The final victim, Conrad Johnson, who was just 33, was shot standing on the steps of the public bus he was about to drive out on his route. Rumors were running rampant after one report of a white box truck near the site of one of the shootings. 9-11 calls reporting white box trucks skyrocketed, including quite a few from my father-in-law at the time, who any time he saw a white box truck on his street or in his neighborhood, he called the police. And I witnessed how people changed their behavior in response to these sniper attacks firsthand. During one trip to a local mall, I watched as people sprinted to and from their cars, often serpentining to present a more difficult target. No one waited next to their cars when they filled up their tanks like they had in the past. We all got out, shoved the nozzle into the gas tank, and jumped back into our cars as quickly as possible because several people were shot in and around gas chambers. A lot of changes we couldn't see at the time were also happening. Because that bus driver was shot, bus ridership dropped noticeably in the weeks and months after the attacks. People who lived near sites where attacks occurred avoided them like the plague, afraid that the snipers would return, although in the end they never did. Each attack took place at a different location. Now at the time, roughly 5 million people lived in the Washington, D.C. area. 13 people were shot. Even one is too many, of course. But any one person's chances of being attacked by the snipers were very, very low, on the order of being struck by lightning. And as someone with a personal and professional interest in how people react to dangers and fears, and how those reactions influence successful communication, I was very interested to learn how my community's reaction to the snipers affected their true hazard. The results would help to inform my future work, helping public and private leaders communicate in difficult situations. So a few years after the sniper attacks, I started searching for relevant studies. What I learned was absolutely fascinating in terms of how people react to fears and whether or not that raises or lowers uh, their risks from being hurt or killed from any number of things. But before we can really understand the studies that were done of the DC sniper attacks, we need to know a little bit how people assess and perceive risk and how that affects what they are and aren't afraid of. As it turns out, we as human beings are terrible risk assessors. Now, that wasn't always the case. Thousands of years ago, when our distant ancestors survived as hunters and gatherers, our risk assessment skills were pretty finely honed. Run from the lion. Don't eat those berries. Stay away from the tribe down the river. But somewhere along the way, as we became more civilized and comfortable, our risk assessment skills atrophied. Some behavioral scientists theorize that our brains remain hardwired to fear and avoid risk from thousands of years ago and haven't adapted to a society that's far more complicated than those that existed then. Others speculate that our senses are dulled because we've succeeded in making everyday life so safe and secure. And so when something presents a new risk to us, it's very hard for us to judge how afraid we should be of that risk. Coronavirus is an excellent example. Most of us have not lived through a pandemic here in the United States or around the world. So this is something new. While we're used to the basic flu, and many of us get flu shots every fall in order to minimize the risk of getting sick or dying from that flu, we're not sure how to handle a pandemic like coronavirus, which is why we turn to experts and government leaders and why their jobs are so difficult, because it all depends on how we perceive the risk and how we react to it that will determine whether or not we can successfully navigate our way through a crisis like that. I'll give you an example. Let's think about poisoning. Plutonium is one of the most dangerous substances on Earth. It's extremely toxic, particularly if you breathe it in. 
even a little bit, even a tiny microscopic particle of plutonium, if inhaled into your lungs, is almost going to guarantee that you're going to die. But the good news is that very few of us will ever be exposed to plutonium. It's very unlikely that we'll come across it in our day-to-day -day lives or over the course of our lifetime. Now think about rat poison. It's also very toxic if ingested. And unlike plutonium, rat poison is in plenty of people's cupboards. If you ask a toxicologist which substance presents a bigger risk, she'll tell you it's the rat poison because the chances of exposure are much higher. But if you ask the average person which substance is more dangerous, almost anyone is going to tell you plutonium. It's because rat poison is familiar. We buy it in a store, we keep it in our homes, and we feel as if we make sure that it doesn't get into the wrong hands, kids can't get at it, we're careful when we use it that we're going to be okay. And all of those things are factors in determining whether or not we consider something to be a risk and whether or not we should be afraid of it. So let's take a look at the factors that can influence and affect risk acceptance and perception, and therefore what we tend to fear and what we tend to not fear. And here I'm drawing on the work of noted experts like Dr. Paul Slovic, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Oregon, and David Ropik and Dr. George Gray at Harvard University. In fact, Dr. David Ropik will be our guest on episode two of the podcast. As it turns out, of all the factors that influence the acceptance of risk, the most important and powerful is trust. If we trust the source of a risk, we are much more likely to accept the risk. In fact, some research suggests that we're 2,000 times more likely to accept a risk if it comes from someone or something we trust. So what does that mean for us when we're in a difficult situation? It means that if the people or person that we're trying to communicate with trusts us, they are 2,000 times more likely to accept what we're telling them, which is why establishing trust and credibility with our audiences is so important to effective communication in a difficult situation. Now, the classic example here of how you can understand why trust would be so powerful is driving. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, close to 36,000 Americans died in motor vehicle-related accidents in 2018. The lifetime risk of being involved in a car accident that is either fatal or involves significant injury is about 1 in 75 here in the United States. I'm sure everyone who's listening knows someone who lost his or her life in this way. I'll never forget it. I had a high school classmate who was killed our junior year. Or my dad's boss, who was killed one day in a freak accident on his way to work. In fact, getting behind the wheel is one of life's most dangerous activities. I like to say when I'm teaching courses on communicating effectively in difficult situations, that if driving were a food, the United States Food and Drug Administration would regulate it out of existence tomorrow. If there was a food on the market that was killing 36,000 people every year, it would not be allowed to be sold. Yet when was the last time you hesitated when you got behind the wheel because you were afraid of being hurt or killed? Well, the reason you don't think about it, one of the important reasons that you don't think about it, is that it's because you trust yourself as a driver. Every year, Allstate does a survey of its customers, and they ask a number of questions, including, how do you rate yourself as a driver? Over 90% and often 95% of people respond that they consider themselves to be above average drivers. They think they're good. They think as long as they're careful, they'll be fine. It's everybody else who's causing the problem. Anyone going slower than you is a moron. Anyone going faster than you is a maniac. We are Goldilocks behind the wheel. Everything is, we do is just right. 
Now, of course, by definition, accidents are impossible to predict. You can be doing everything right, and somebody who's doing it wrong could still slam into you and cause a bad accident. But because we perceive ourselves to be trustworthy behind the wheel, we're much more willing to accept the risk of driving. Another important factor that influences our perception of risk is control. Do we feel we have control over what's going on? And if we do, we're a thousand times more willing to accept a risk. Take driving, for example, again, because most of us believe that we're above average drivers, we feel we're in control behind the wheel. Now think about flying. Many people are afraid to fly. I think most people who fly have some fear of turbulence and other problems that could go on in a plane. And many people who are afraid of flying cite the lack of control as a reason. In fact, courses designed to alleviate fear of flying are often built in part around helping flyers understand how a plane works and what pilots do. And even though it's not going to allow them to grab the stick and fly the plane, if they understand how it works and what the pilot is doing, they may feel like they have a greater sense of control over what's going on. And that makes them more willing to accept the risk. Now, as it turns out, airplane travel is the safest mode of transportation in the United States. And in fact, in most places around the world, you're much safer being in a plane than you are in a car. But the factor of control and even trust can influence your perception of that risk. And as a result, most people are far more afraid to fly than they are to drive, even though, from a rational standpoint, it's driving that is more dangerous than flying. Another important factor that influences how we assess risk involves benefits. Do we see a benefit to the risk that's being imposed upon us? Many years ago, I worked with an organization that represents medical professionals who use small amounts of radioactive isotopes to diagnose and treat disease. At one of the group's meetings, a local television station asked if one of the group's board members would appear for an interview about a controversy involving a common medical procedure. Now, the board meeting happened to take place in Canada, and regulators there had recently decided that a procedure that used one of these radioactive isotopes was not effective and decided that insurance companies were no longer going to cover the expense involved. The society that Dr. Pierce represented believed the procedure was effective and wanted to overturn the decision, or at least convince people they should consider paying for it themselves, even if their insurance wouldn't pay for it. And in Canada, of course, insurance paying for it means the government paying for it. Now, in helping him to prepare, I urged Dr. Pierce to spend as much time as possible talking about the procedure's benefits when he had the chance during the interview. For the people watching the TV program, the risk they feared was emotional in the form of a financial liability. If I need to have this procedure, it's going to cost me a lot more now that my insurance won't be able to cover it. But if people recognized the benefits associated with that risk, they were much more willing to press for the government to change its decision. And that was only part of the challenge, of course. Dr. Pierce also had to convince people that the procedure was effective, contrary to the recent regulatory ruling. But before he could win people over to that argument, the factual argument, he had to break through by identifying, acknowledging, and minimizing his audience's perceived risk. I'm pleased to say that the interview went very well, and ultimately the Canadian regulatory did overturn his decision several months later and reinstore payment for that particular medical procedure. It's a good example of how emphasizing benefits can be very effective in helping people to understand, perceive, and accept a risk, and not to be afraid of that risk. Next, we're going to talk about familiarity. About 10 years ago, I took up flying. Now, the first lesson is called a demo flight. 
And after my instructor took me through pre-flight, which is about a 10 minute process, during which he showed me how to check everything from the amount of gas in the tanks to the air pressure and the tires, we climbed into the cockpit. We ran through what's called a pre-start checklist and he showed me how to start the plane's engine. And then he turned to me and over the wind of the propeller very calmly said, okay, taxi out to the runway and take off. I looked at him like he was crazy, but he assured me he wouldn't let me do anything wrong or dangerous. I was sweating, my heart was pounding. I've never been so nervous or worried not to mention a little suspicious of a flight instructor who would let me drive a plane on my first day. And in the end, everything went well, and as the plane lifted off the ground, all my angst disappeared. As it turns out, as I learned, taking off and flying an airplane is relatively easy. Pilots get paid to land. And so when he was telling me to go ahead and taxi out and take off, he knew that it was something that I could do because he had done it hundreds if not thousands of times. He was familiar with it, and I was not. But after doing it several hundred times, I soloed, and I no longer feared pre-flight or taxiing or taking off or flying or landing. I really didn't think about it at all. It, it became just like getting into the front seat of a car. In fact, driving even got a little boring after I had experienced three-dimensional traffic-free 125-mile-an-hour travel. What I had perceived to be a very big risk melted away, in part thanks to familiarity, and in part to a sense of control and understanding what was going on. Again, getting back to people who fly. If they can be more familiar with how the plane works and feel like they have a greater sense of control over what's going on, they're much less likely to be afraid of it. And because people tend to fear the unknown, like they would fear a, corona, a pandemic like the coronavirus, if you listen to the introductory episode of this podcast, you'll remember that I said I would explain why the movie Jaws has played such an important part in understanding how to be effective communicators in difficult situations. Jaws came out in the summer of 1975. In fact, it was the first real summer blockbuster ever produced. And it single-handedly raised shark attacks to the very top of the nation's collective list of things to fear. When insurance companies would do their surveys and ask people what they were afraid of, things like death, things like public speaking, would rise to the very top of the list. In fact, that always makes me think of the old Jerry Seinfeld joke that most people, more people are afraid of public speaking than they are of death, which means most people who attend a funeral would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Well, before 1975, on those surveys, shark attacks didn't appear in the top 10 or 20 things that people, were, Americans, were afraid of. But after that movie came out, it has been in the top 10 list ever since, over the course of the last 45 years. And in fact, that year, in 1975, Beach resorts on every, on every coast reported lower attendance that summer. And to this day, people hum the movie's iconic theme song and make jokes when they swim in the ocean. Back in 1975, the lifetime risk of being attacked by a shark was about 1 in 60,000, even less than being shot by the snipers in Washington, D.C., or hit by lightning. The number of people killed in shark attacks around the world in 2019 was 4. In other words, the real risk is incredibly low. What changed was the perceived risk of shark attack as a result of the massive publicity launched and sustained by one very successful summer blockbuster movie. And that's the point here. Publicity, media attention, can raise people's fear of something way above what makes sense in terms of the actual risk that that fear presents. Coronavirus is new. For three months after it first appeared, it was pretty much the only thing on the news, no matter what newspaper you read or what television show you watched. And so people developed an enormous fear of this unfamiliar pandemic that was out of control, that provided absolutely no benefits to anyone, 
All of that, I hope, begins to give you a sense of how some of these factors, and there are many others, can influence our perception of risk and cause us to be afraid of things that maybe we shouldn't be and to not be afraid of things that we probably should. Now, to close out this primer on risk acceptance and perception and its effect on what we fear and don't, let's engage in an exercise that I hope will show how these risk factors that we've discussed can change the perceived risk into real risks and vice versa. Let's take driving, which we've already discussed, is an incredibly dangerous activity that nobody really fears, and compare it to living next to a power line, which is an issue that I worked on for many years in my career. We know that the real risk associated with driving is about 1 in 75. I couldn't find a reliable statistic on the risk associated with living near a power line, probably because it's so low, but for the sake of argument, let's say it's 1 in 100,000. Now, that's even less of a risk than one posed by the snipers here in D.C. or by shark attacks. So let's take a look at uh, trust. Do we trust ourselves behind the wheel? Well, yes, as we've discussed, we do. As all states study tell us, most of us consider us to be ourselves to be above average drivers. So what happens to our perception of the risk of driving when we pass it through the filter of trust? Well, our perception of that risk goes down by a factor of 2,000. So if we assume the real risk of driving is 1 in 100, we'll raise it up from 1 in 75 because it's easier to do math. In our minds, the perceived risk becomes 1 in 200,000. In other words, the trust factor leads us to believe that driving is 2,000 times safer than it really is. Now let's look at living next to a power line. Do we trust the company that wants to build a new power line in our neighborhood? Probably not. Power companies are big, faceless corporations that only care about making money, or so we think. They'll do and say anything, that it takes to get that line built, and they don't really care if the line is safe or not. And besides, power lines are big and ugly and they're scary. Since we don't trust the source of this risk, our perception of it goes up by a factor of 2,000. So rather than a risk of 1 in 100,000, which is again a number that I'm just using for the sake of argument, we perceive the risk to be more like 1 in 50, or 2,000 times riskier than it really is. So think about what happened there. By applying just one of the factors that influence risk, and we discussed five or six, and there are dozens of them altogether. What we've done is turn a very real risk of driving into a perceived risk that's less likely than a shark attack, being hit by lightning, or even be killed in a fireworks-related accident. And the opposite happened when we applied the trust factor to living near a power line. What is actually very safe became essentially an imminent danger. And when you apply those other factors that we discussed, like familiarity and control and potentially publicity, it's only going to make driving seem safer and living next to a power line seem even more dangerous. In fact, as I've experienced over the course of my career, many people who live along a proposed power line's new route will just assume that if it gets built, they're going to die. And that's why so many people will fight so hard to stop the construction of controversial facilities that will almost surely do them no harm. But so few of us give driving a second thought. Let's go back to the story of the DC snipers. Many researchers looked at how people's fear of those snipers affected their behavior and whether that behavior put them at greater risk. Whole books were written about it, in fact. But the study I found to be the most interesting and understandable to a non-academic like me was done by the Center of Risk for Healthcare Research and Practice in London. Here are some of the most relevant findings. Remember the people serpentining through the parking lot at the mall? Well, that's dangerous. When you run through a parking lot, you're more likely to be hit by a car backing out of the spot. And if you're running back and forth, drivers have a harder time avoiding you. In other words, while you're doing your best to avoid being shot by the snipers, 
your chances of being hit by a car go up dramatically. And for those who chose to drive themselves to work rather than take the bus, because one of the sniper's victims was a bus driver, they put themselves at much greater risk of being killed or injured in a car accident. Traveling by bus is much safer than traveling by car. And finally, people who drove farther to get gas or groceries in order to avoid places where the snipers had already struck raised their risk of being in a car accident simply because they spent more time in the car. Ultimately, the British researchers found that the chances of being shot and killed by the snipers had they been on the loose for an entire year would have been 1 in 53,325. As a Washingtonian myself, I was more than twice as likely to be killed in a car accident, an accidental fall in my home, an accidental poisoning, or even a random run-of-the-mill murder. I do remember jumping in and out of my car to avoid the incredibly small risk of being shot. I don't recall strapping myself into the shower to avoid a much more likely fatal slip in the bathtub. In other words, the best thing that people could do in response to the sniper was nothing. Because of the way we perceive risk and how those perceptions affect what we fear. So what are the morals of this story? Well, I'd like to share two. The first is an important technique to apply when communicating in a difficult situation. You have to be aware of how people perceive any risks that they believe you're imposing on them. If you need to discipline an employee, for example, think about what he or she is going to fear during that conversation. Certainly, you are imposing a risk upon them. That risk is emotional, it's psychological, potentially it could be financial. They're going to fear that they're going to lose their job. They're going to fear about being embarrassed in front of their colleagues and their boss. And they may feel some shame if they understand that they're not doing a good job and have to shape up if they're going to stay employed with you. When you understand where those fears are coming from and how trust, control, benefits, and all the other factors that can influence those fears, you'll be a much more effective communicator in difficult situations. And the second moral is a more general principle for life. Because we're lousy risk assessors, because of all the factors that influence our perception of risk, and because what we fear is so often not what truly presents a danger, we often react in ways that put us at greater risk. Certainly that has happened during the coronavirus pandemic, so it's very relevant to us today. Many of us have been spending a lot more time at home the last several months, and home can be very dangerous. Slips, falls, poisonings, fire, a more sedentary lifestyle, bad food. These are all real risks that we rarely think about but can collectively be much more dangerous than even COVID-19. And of course, staying home means more interaction with our friends, family, significant others, and neighbors. Here in my house, in addition to my girlfriend, I've got five stepchildren and two step-grandchildren running around. We've all been here together for the last four months for the most part. And as we bump up against each other, we create more and more friction. And as a result, I've found myself in more difficult situations than I would have expected. And that's what we're gonna talk about in our next episode, part two of The Only Thing We Have to Fear. Our guest will be David Ropik. David is an author, an award-winning television reporter, a teacher, consultant, and a public speaker. For the past decade, his focus has been on applying a better understanding of the way people perceive risk to the challenge of risk communication and overall risk management. David is also the author of a book called How Risky Is It Really? Look for that on episode two. And until then, remember, always be positive. In the course of putting this podcast together, I learned that it's like any other work of art. You're never really finished. You just have to stop. So look for new additions in the next episode, a website, and a Twitter feed. Until then, I'd like to thank Jim Cirillo for the original music. Jim also provided invaluable advice in helping me launch this podcast. 
To learn more about Jim's music and his other ventures, check out jimiumgroup.com. That's J-I-M-I-U-M group.com. Original art by C.C. Snetzinger. And if you like what you've heard, please do all the usual things. Subscribe to, rate, and or review this podcast. And again, until next time, always be positive. In the course of putting this podcast together, I learned that it's like any other work of art. You're never really finished. You just have to stop. So look for new additions in the next episode, a website, and a Twitter feed. Until then, I'd like to thank Jim Cirillo for the original music. Jim also provided invaluable advice in helping me launch this podcast. To learn more about Jim's music and his other ventures, check out jimiumgroup.com. That's J-I-M-I-U-M group.com. Original art by C.C. Snetzinger. And if you like what you've heard, please do all the usual things. Subscribe to, rate, and or review this podcast. And again, until next time, always be positive.